Boys and girls, congregation, why are we here? Why is there a congregation right here in this location? Why does our congregation gather in this place? Now, we all know our Bibles well enough that nothing ever happens by chance. When Paul spoke to the Athenians in Acts 17, he clearly stated that we are all precisely where God has determined that we should be. Our place in history, our place in this world has been precisely determined by God. That's true for us individually. That's true for us as a congregation. And today we're going to focus on the great calling of the church to be proclaimers of the gospel, even to the very ends of the world. And so this morning, with God's help, I want to focus on the Great Commission. And then this evening, we will preach an evangelistic sermon, a sermon that will focus in a most remarkable way on God's character, as I will explain again tonight, because it is God Himself who is ultimately the great evangelist of history. And we, as His people, we as His church, are called to do His work and to engage in proclaiming His Word. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at all four passages in Scripture that focus on the Great Commission. Each passage in its own is worthy of a sermon, but I want us this morning, I really want you to get the, the big picture and to see how all four passages in a wonderful way fit together so that we have a, a comprehensive overview of what it is that we as the people of God are called to do in the midst of this fallen, sin-infested world. And so we're going to look at, first of all, at Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. And that focuses on the discipling of the nations. Christ has commissioned us to disciple the nations. Secondly, we're going to focus on Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, where we are told specifically that we must go and preach the gospel to every creature. Then we'll turn to Luke 24. We read the passage together. And there, Christ gives us insight into some of the essential elements of that gospel message, where we're told that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And that's our final point, when we will focus on Acts 1, verses, or verse 8 where Christ says, you shall be my witnesses, or you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, beginning at Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So we're going to begin then. I would ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, and we will begin by briefly looking at that passage. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. There we read God's word, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. As we read together, congregation, Christ uttered these words shortly before he ascended on high. This is probably the time where the 500 or more than 500 were gathered together in Galilee and where he explicitly commissioned the disciples to go now into the world, now that he had accomplished his redemptive work, now that he had risen and was ready to ascend in heaven, it is as if he now passes the baton to his disciples. And first of all, he reminded them of this blessed truth that, remember, all power, all power and all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Remember that. Remember that this world into which I'm sending you, this world is my domain. Remember that as you go into a Gentile world, when you go to the nations, when you go to the nations that are wallowing in idolatry, when you go into a world that is hostile to me and hostile to my word, but remember, I am sending you. I am commissioning you. I am, go- I'm, I am commanding you in light of who I am, in light of my power, you must go and you must teach all the nations. Of course, that language is very significant. It would be actually fruitful for you if you have a computer concordance, is to simply pursue that theme all through Scripture, that whole idea of the nations. And this brings us back all the way to Genesis 12, verse 3, when the Lord appears to Abraham, whom he has sovereignly called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham, who was an idol worshiper. Abraham, who was as ungodly as all the other inhabitants of Ur of the Chaldees. And then we see God's sovereign grace. He takes that man, Abraham, he takes him out of that environment. And he tells him, I will show you a land where you will dwell. But then he gives them this amazing promise. Not only does he promise that he will bless him, that he will go before him, but then he says, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. All families. And actually in Genesis 10, we have a listing of all the families of the earth. We have a listing of all the descendants of of the sons of Noah. All those families out of which all the nations, all the families of the earth have come forth until this day. And when God spoke to Abraham these words, nothing seemed more impossible and more unlikely than that that would happen. And yet, congregation, we are here today. We are here today because God continues to fulfill that promise. And now the moment has come. Now the exalted Christ is saying, the moment has come that you must now go forth beyond the boundaries of this nation. Now you must go to the nations. You must go to all the families of the earth to proclaim my precious word. 
This was already on the mind of Christ, even before he suffered and died and rose again. In Matthew 24, verse 14, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. In Acts 13, verse 47, when uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, are preaching in Antioch, and when they meet with the enmity and the hostility of the Jews, and after they warn them, then they remind them of their calling, how that Christ called them and said, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation and to the ends of the earth. And so he says, therefore, go. And this go is so important, congregation, go. In other words, what that means also for us today, that sinners, the ungodly, all who surround us here who do not know God, are not naturally inclined to come to us. No, Christ says, you must go to them. You must go. You must go and seek them out. You must go and find them. You must go and bring thy word. Bring my word to sinners, to nations who are not waiting for it. And so Romans 10, verse 14, Paul says, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And what that simply means is that without us, the people of God, without us doing what we can to be communicators of that word, to be communicators of that gospel, the ungodly will not know that gospel. They will not know of the only name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And therefore, we must go. I want you to remember something, boys and girls. The word gospel begins with go. Remember that. The word gospel begins with go. And so gospel and go are inseparably connected. The gospel requires us to go and to actively seek out sinners and proclaim the gospel to them. What's also important in this passage is Christ's emphasis on discipleship. Because when he uses the word teach there, we see it twice in that text, but they are two different Greek words. Go ye therefore and disciple all nations. And how do you do that? Well, and Christ gives us two subordinate clauses. In, in grammar, you know that a subordinate clause supports the main clause. It modifies, it explains the meaning of the main clause. And so the main clause is Go and teach all nations. Go and disciple all the families of the earth. And you do that by baptizing them and by instructing them. So you do that by administering the sacrament whereby sinners are incorporated into the church. And you do that by teaching them the word of God to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so the reason this is so important is that the goal of evangelism, the goal of ministering the gospel to perishing sinners, is not merely the salvation of their soul. Far too often, 
Evangelism is reduced to that. And yes, we are concerned about the salvation of their soul. We should recognize that without the gospel, our fellow human beings are destined for hell. They are destined to perish. But there is more to the gospel than just the salvation of our soul. No, the ultimate goal is transformed lives. That is the great goal of redemption. It is the great goal of God in the lives of His people. God saves His people in order to make them a new people. God saves sinners in order to restore us to be what God created us to be. That's why it says in Romans 8 that God's people, it doesn't say that we have been predestined to be saved, that we have been predestined to be delivered from everlasting punishment. It says we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's the goal of redemption, is to make us new creatures in Christ. And Christ is saying, that must be your overarching goal. As you proclaim my word to sinners, your overarching goal is that they would become not only believers in me, but also followers of me. So when we engage in evangelism, we're not done by just telling people the gospel message. No, that means that also as a congregation, we should be committed to make sure that those who come in contact with the gospel will come under the entire word of God to make sure that we instruct them in all things that Christ has commanded us to do, that we instruct them regarding the entire revealed will of God. And so the goal of evangelism is ultimately transformed lives. And so the Christ whom we preach has not only been given unto justification, that's the means whereby our sins are forgiven and we are made right with God again, but is also given unto sanctification. And those two belong inseparably together. And so Paul writes in Acts 20, verse 27, when he bids farewell to the Ephesian elders, he says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. That's what Christ is saying. As you go into the world, you must proclaim all the counsel of God. You must go and disciple the nations. You must, your goal must be to bring the nations under my authority. So in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, Paul writes, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to the wholesome words, and listen carefully, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here comes the key phrase and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. The doctrine which is according to godliness. So a, 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 a biblical interaction with the Word of God, blessed by the Holy Spirit, will not only result in the salvation of sinners, but in the transformation of sinners. And so Christ is saying, your overarching goal must be discipleship. 
And of course, we know the outcome of all of this because we know that what God promised to Abraham will be fulfilled. The wonderful passage from Revelation 7 verse 9. Why don't we look at this passage a moment? It's a very important passage in the Bible that, that literally ties Genesis and Revelation together, which, is, which connects with what God promised in Genesis 12, verse 3. There we read in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, here he comes, of all nations, and kindreds, that means ethnic groups, and people, and tongues, that means languages, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. That will be the final outcome when it's all said and done. And already in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, we have promises about that. In Psalm 22, verse 27, it says, All the kindreds, all the nations, all the peoples of the nations shall worship before thee. And so when finally... The church has accomplished its task when finally Christ has used his people to bring his word to all the nations of the world. When it's all said and done, that redeemed multitude will represent all the nations of the earth. And the promise that God made to Abraham will be fully and eternally fulfilled. And all families Represented, all families will be represented, all families shall forever be blessed in Christ. So now let's look to the next passage and let's turn to Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. Please turn with me to Mark 16 and 15 and 16. And so there we read this and he said unto them, that is Jesus, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So in this passage, the word gospel is explicitly used. So let me explain to you the meaning of the word gospel. So even the boys and girls that are taking notes, the word gospel comes from Old English. It's a combination of the name God and the word spell. God spell. And so over time, God spell merged together and it became gospel. And the word spell is an Old English word that just means word. Our word spelling is still connected to that. So God spell. So literally, it means God's Word, a Word that comes from God. And over time, as those two words merged into gospel, it specifically meant a, a good Word of God. And that fits entirely, because even in our English language, there is a real connection between the word God and good. 
Because God is the ultimate revelation and expression of all that is good. He is an overflowing fountain of goodness, as the Belgian Confession so beautifully says. And there is nothing that so demonstrates the goodness of God as the fact that He has sent into this world a message that contains good news, the gospel good news, namely the gospel of salvation. And again, we have some specifics here. So in Matthew 28, the command is more global. Go and disciple all the nations. In Mark 16, it says explicitly that we we are to proclaim that gospel, that good news. We are to proclaim it to every creature. So what is similar to Matthew 28 is that it says again, go. It begins with go. Remember, boys and girls, when you look at the word gospel... It begins with the word go. Always remember that. The gospel requires of us that we go, that we actively go and proclaim that gospel. And here it says, go into all the world, right? Similar to what it says in Matthew 28, all the world. But now it says, and preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel to every creature. So what does that mean? Christ is saying, Wherever human beings are found, that's your mission field. Wherever human beings reside, your calling is to find them. Your calling is to go to them. Your calling is to bring that gospel to every creature without distinction. And of course, that's the wonderful whosoever of the gospel. Because the best summary of the gospel, of course, is the words of Christ spoke to Nicodemus when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what's significant about that passage, which is again worthy of an entire sermon which I will be doing in due season, is that that gospel summary that Christ gives, that powerful gospel summary, begins with God. And congregation, all gospel proclamation begins with God. The focus must first of all be on God. And so when Paul preaches the gospel in Athens... As you know, he was in Athens, and he was waiting there for Silas, and as he walked to the city, everywhere he saw altars to this God and to that God. They they worshipped multiple gods. And then this one altar, dedicated to the unknown God, they wanted to make sure they didn't skip any gods. That gave Paul the opportunity to preach to every creature And so God led him to Athens, God led him to Mars Hill, and Paul knew as a servant of God, this was God's divinely appointed moment for him to preach the gospel to those creatures, 
and to proclaim his word to these men on Mars Hill. And if you, if you look at that chapter in, in Acts 17, where does Paul begin? He begins where the gospel proclamation must always begin. It must begin with where God begins. Where the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. And Paul realized that these people in Athens, first and foremost, they needed to hear who God was. And in the most remarkable way, he begins to explain to those heathen philosophers who this God is in whom we live, move, and have our very being. Because congregation, the gospel makes no sense unless we begin with the God who created us, but also the God who has purposed the salvation of perishing sinners. The God who has been moved eternally to give His only begotten Son in the fullness of time in order that through Him fallen sinners could be reconciled with Himself. Then that wonderful word, whosoever. I've told this to some of you, but let me repeat it here. The story, there's a well-known story about John Bunyan. John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. And he said, I am so happy that it says whosoever. If that had said, God so loved the world that if John Bunyan believes, he will not perish but have eternal life. I would have been convinced that there was another John Bunyan in England and it was not meant for me. But it says, whosoever. And that's what is expressed in this passage. Preach the gospel to every creature wherever sinners are to be found. Colossians 1 verse 23, Paul writes the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature under the heaven. And of course, when we preach the gospel, we must preach it faithfully. And what Mark 16 emphasizes, that the faithful preaching of the gospel not only contains a positive message, namely verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but there's also a negative message but he that believeth not shall be damned. And we are utterly unfaithful if we hide that reality. That's what makes evangelism such serious work. We are proclaiming God's word to men and women who are on their way to hell without God's intervention, who will perish forever unless they believe in God's only begotten Son. That makes the work of evangelism such a very urgent matter. So I'm going to ask myself the question. I'm going to ask you the question. When is the last time that you really felt the weight of the fact that the people you are meeting in the store, in the airport, wherever it is, all of these human beings are on their way to the judgment seat of God? All of these human beings that surround us will perish forever unless they hear this gospel, unless we proclaim, unless we go to them and seek them out and proclaim 
the good news of the gospel. And so we have to bring both aspects, the positive, that believing in Christ results in salvation. John 6, verse 40, Christ says it so plainly there. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. That's a foundational truth of the gospel. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then also the other side, the other side of the coin, if you will, damnation for all who do not believe in Christ. And again, let me let Scripture speak for itself. And we need to understand this. We need to proclaim this honestly and lovingly. John 3, verse 18 He that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 8, 24, I said therefore unto you, Jesus says, that you shall die in your sins, for, he says, if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Think about that. If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 talks about that Christ in flaming fire will take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, clearly identifying the very nature of unbelief, which is a willful rejection of the Word of God. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, that they all might be damned. Who? Who will be damned? Who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And in Revelation 21 verse 8, we have a statement, who they all are that will have their part in the lake of fire. It mentions the unbelieving. But the unbelieving shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, that makes evangelism such very serious business. I may have mentioned this before, but I remember a number of years ago, at the beginning of one of our synods, the minister who did the opening meditation, he said, do you believe in hell? I got very quiet. He says, unless you believe in the reality of hell, there will be no urgency in your ministry. And he reminded us the reason we are here, the reason our congregations exist, is we are called to be the proclaimers of the gospel to men and women who are on their way to hell who will be damned without it who will perish forever. And so it is a glorious task, but it's also a serious task in which we have to be faithful and proclaim the whole counsel of God. The Apostle Paul was able to say to the Ephesian elders when he bade them farewell in Acts 20, I am free from the blood of all men. Can I say that? Can you say that? Are we free from the blood 
of those who cross our pathway, those with whom we come in contact. Now let's turn to Luke 24, please. So our next aspect of the Great Commission, Luke 24, verse 47. Luke 24, verse 47. And again, Christ here speaking just before his ascension says this to his disciples, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Again, you, you will see the similarity to be preached in his name among all nations. But here, what Christ does here, he specifically highlights two foundational components that must be part of that message. In other words, he's saying, you must go to a fallen world, you must go to sinful human beings, and you must call them to repent. You must call them to repent. You must call them to turn to God from their idols. You must call to them ultimately to believe in His only begotten Son because that's what the word repentance implies. True repentance will always culminate in faith in Christ. That's why it's been said, it's not original with me, is that repentance and faith are like two Siamese twins. You will never have the one without the other. Those two belong inseparably together. True repentance will result in faith. And genuine faith in Christ will always again produce repentance. So you could say that as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, sinners will repent believingly and they will believe repentantly because those two belong inseparably together. And very, very briefly, what do we mean again by repentance? Far too often, repentance is defined incorrectly. Repentance is defined as a turning from sin and then unto God. A congregation that's exactly the wrong order. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, he reminds those Thessalonians, he says, how you, listen carefully, how you turned unto God from your idols. Why is that so significant? Because if we turn it around, it gives the impression that I have to do my best to clean up my life. I have to stop doing this and not doing that. And I try to live better. And hopefully in the process, I, as I break with sin and I, I improve my life, hopefully God will be gracious to me. No. Repentance begins by turning to God. When God calls us to repent, as we will see tonight, He is saying, sinner, turn to me, your maker. Stop living with your back towards me. Turn to me and acknowledge me for who I am. Humble yourself before me. Because you see, congregation, it's only when we turn to God, when God becomes real in all that He has revealed of Himself, when God becomes real in His holiness, in His majesty, when He becomes real, it's then 
that we will be motivated to break with our idols. It's the recognition of God. It's the awareness of God that produces a breaking with sin. Turn with me to Acts 26, verse 20, where uh, the Apostle Paul clearly highlights that as well. Acts 26, verse 20. Paul says, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. And now look what follows, and do works meet for repentance, right? So first of all, turn to God and then do works meet for repentance. That's the biblical order. That's repentance. Turning to God from sin. And again, that's why it is so important that our evangelism must be God-centered. The focus of the evangelistic message should not be, first of all, what is in it for the sinner, if I may put it that way. Far too often... The gospel, if you can call it that, is completely watered down and where the emphasis is entirely, um, well, if you want to escape heaven and get to hell, or if you want to escape hell and get to heaven, you need to believe in Christ. And so the entire focus is on what's in it for the sinner who believes. Now, in biblical evangelism, the focus must be on God. Our job is to inform sinners who God is, the God who made them, in whom we live and move and have our being, the God against whom we have sinned, the God whom we have provoked to wrath by our sin, a God who will condemn us forever unless we believe in His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this turning to God you see, all of that ultimately results in a sinner wrought upon by the Holy Spirit that as he turns to God, as God becomes real, he will then realize, and again, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that the only way we can be reconciled with that God is by believing in his only begotten Son. That's why Jesus himself began his ministry in Mark 1, verse 15, where he says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Again, uniting those two essential things. And again, if we turn to Acts 20, Paul's farewell, and he summarizes his whole ministry by saying, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. These, that's the basic, that's the core, you see. Paul is saying, my entire ministry boils down to this, that wherever I have been, wherever I have gone, wherever God has given me opportunity to preach the gospel to every creature, I have proclaimed repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ is also telling us in this passage that our message is not complete until we proclaim in His name, by His authority, 
that when by the grace of God we believe in Him, that we will receive the full remission of sins. It's remarkable that Christ here inserts that. As you know, I've said this already many times. There's nothing more foundational to the gospel than its promise to a perishing sinner that by trusting in Christ, he will obtain the full and complete remission of sins. This is the foundation of the gospel. That's why Peter, in his second sermon in Acts 3, verse 19, he says, Repent ye therefore. In light of all that I have said to you, repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, clearly, clearly focused on the remission of sins as the essential purpose of his redeeming work. And that's why the very first thing he said on the cross, the very first words that came across his lips, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Acts 10, verse 43, an important text, a text we should memorize, our children should memorize. To him, that is Christ, Give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And our gospel message is not complete unless we proclaim this essential and foundational truth. The truth of the gospel is that that simple act of faith, as feeble as that act of faith may be, that simple act of faith secures the full and free pardon of sins. So when the thief on the cross, who hung there in great pain as well, when all he said, remember me, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And that simple statement, remember me was his confession of faith. And Christ immediately responded and said to that man, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's why Paul concluded that remarkable sermon in Acts 13 in Antioch of Pisidia. After he explained to a primarily Jewish audience, when he gave them an overview of redemptive history, and when he pointed out that Christ was the fulfillment of all of that, and he ends his sermon by saying, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, through this Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And you must do it, he says, you must do it in my name. You must do it as if I myself were present. You must do it upon my authority. You must do it as my ambassadors in my name. In my name you must preach repentance and remission of sins. And you are to do it beginning at Jerusalem. So now let's turn to Acts 1 verse 8, the last of the four passages. Acts 1 verse 8. 
And there we read this. And it's just moments, moments before Christ ascends. He says, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Just see how all comes together. Everything comes together that we have considered so far. But notice again, in a very unique way, he clearly defines for the disciples and for us what their task would be. It says, ye shall be witnesses unto me. Not only shall you be my witnesses, but you must go into the world and you must preach about me. And so there Christ is simply saying, I am at the core of your message. I am your message. You must go and proclaim my name. You must bear witness to me. And notice what else it says here. It says you have to do this in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So parents, what you could do for your younger children today, when you come home and you review this, take a sheet of paper, put Jerusalem, and then Judea is, the, is a circle, and then another circle, Samaria, and then a bigger circle, and that's the world. That's the program, you see. That is the order in which we are to obey the Great Commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you read the book of Acts, that is the structure of the book of Acts. It all begins in Jerusalem with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And from there, it spills over into Judea. From there, it spills over into Samaria, also through the ministry of Philip, the evangelist. And from there, it goes to Antioch, and it goes to the very ends of the world. That's the program. That's the framework of the Great Commission. That's the order which we are to obey until this day. And so mission work and evangelism is not just something we do at the ends of the world. No, Christ is saying you must engage in this as close to home to possible, as possible. And you know what? If Christ had not specifically commanded his disciples to begin in Jerusalem, can you think of reasons, boys and girls, why they would have skipped Jerusalem? Why do you think they would have skipped Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the city that rejected their master. Jerusalem is the city that crucified their master. Jerusalem is that place governed by the scribes and Pharisees who were so utterly hostile to them. Scribes and Pharisees, who in their blind zeal would persecute, even with the Apostle Paul before his conversion, would persecute the followers of Christ. 
In other words, Jerusalem, though it was the city of God, was like, like enemy territory. No, Christ says, you must begin with the city that rejected me, the city that crucified me. You must begin to proclaim the gospel to them. That's my calling. That itself is an amazing truth, congregation. Because what does that emphasize? Is that no sinner is ever too great a sinner to be an object of evangelistic outreach. The message of salvation is for the chief of sinners. It is for the vilest of all sinners. Or as John Bunyan called them, it is the gospel is for Jerusalem sinners. And as Bunyan points out, they are, they are the worst kind. These people in Jerusalem, they are the ones who were screaming on top of their lungs, His blood be upon us and our children. Crucify Him. Away with Him. Jesus says, you must begin with these people. You must preach the gospel to them. That's important, congregation. Because... You know what? There's even salvation for the members of Hamas. We don't think too highly of them now, do we? But they can be saved as well. Even if Adolf Hitler had repented and believed in Christ, he would have been saved. Because God saved Manasseh. Manasseh, who was an extremely wicked and violent and wretched king, utterly hostile to God. And God saved him. And think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. So when he was persecuting, when he was hailing men and women and casting them into prison and having them put to death, don't you think that the, the congregation of Jerusalem was filled with fear towards this man? They would have never imagined that God would save a man like that. And yet, congregation, if we have any self-knowledge, if we have any self-knowledge, I know we are all filled with abhorrence about what's happening in Israel, the, 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 the horrible deeds that were done. But let's never forget, that's what the human heart is capable of. There's only one reason why you and I have not engaged in such horrendous deeds and it's only the grace of God that makes the difference. Because the heart of man is desperately wicked. But that's the wonder of the gospel. We are called to proclaim the gospel to men and women who have hearts that are desperately wicked and that are hostile to God. And the marvelous thing is that when we proclaim, when we do what God calls us to do, then God will sovereignly join himself to that simple gospel message and use that to save even the vilest and even the very chief of sinners. Years ago, I listened to powerful testimony of a man who used to be the number one two-person in one of the major organized crime families of New York City. A man who had lived a, a life of utter brutality, who had indulged himself in every conceivable form of sin, a most unlikely candidate. And God saved that man. 
to listen to that man who used to be hardened, so hardened as a young man that even older members of the crime family feared him. That man was weeping. He was weeping. He said, God, Christ, he said, Christ went to the bottom of hell and he looked for the most wretched sinner he could find. He found me. He saved me. And this hardened member of the mafia was weeping profoundly because God, had, that's, but that's the wonder of the gospel. You see, that's why we're not on a fool's errand. Yes, we are ultimately bringing a message to men and women who don't want to hear what we have to say. Because by nature, men are hostile to the gospel. But we must go. We must go. And we must go into all the world. And you must begin at Jerusalem. And you must bear witness to me. And the apostles did that. Acts 5 verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Philip, and he had a one-man audience, the man from Ethiopia, he opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. When God converts Paul, the moment he is converted, it's like he breaks forth and it says, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Beginning at Jerusalem. I think you can make the application. We need to wrap this up. Christ is saying, you must begin where I have placed you. You must begin where I have sovereignly planted you. You must begin as close to home as possible. And that means, of course, fathers and mothers, first of all, your family, your children need to be evangelized. That's number one, your own family. And then, then we begin to move out. In other words, we're here in the Comstock area by God's sovereign appointment. That means we must engage ourselves here. And so if you want to follow this text from Comstock, Kalamazoo County, Michigan, United States, that's, that's the program. But always beginning as close to home as possible. And so congregation, I've tried to set before you this morning what Christ has taught us about the Great Commission that he has given to his church. May God use this to awaken us to our calling, a calling we have also here. That God will bless our feeble efforts to begin to be instrumental in carrying out Christ's agenda. That means that we must Go and teach all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That means we must go into all the world, everywhere, and preach the gospel to every creature wherever sinners are to be found, teaching them that salvation is for those that believe in Christ and damnation the portion for those who do not believe in Christ. We must go and proclaim repentance and remission of sins in his name. We must be his witnesses. May God give us grace to do so.
Amen. Let's pray. Great and eternal triune God, we give thee humble thanks that we were permitted to be here today and to listen to those extraordinarily important words that have come from thy lips, clearly declaring to us our great calling, and that is to be that light shining into a dark world, the light of the gospel. Oh, Lord, let us be faithful also as a congregation, but also individually. Oh, let we, that we would ask for grace and courage to, to be obedient to this calling, a calling that can be so intimidating, especially when we meet with a hostile response. But Lord, help us to look to Christ, the King of the church, who has commissioned us to do precisely his work also today, also here where thou hast placed us. That so we would do this in dependence upon him who has promised us that all power in heaven and in earth is given unto him. Who has promised us that his word will not return unto him void, but that it shall accomplish the purpose for which it has been sent. May we also ask ourselves today whether that precious gospel which we have heard all the days of our lives, whether we have believed that gospel. Because the message is clear that unless we believe in thy Son, we will perish forever. Oh, remember us with our children. Bless the instruction that will be given following the morning service. And gather with us again in this evening hour. We ask it in Christ's name alone. Amen.